0: Hi, this is Jordan Moorhead, and this is the Austin Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, we have Victor Stefan on, and he's going to tell us all about what he's up to investing in real estate in Central Texas, and also what he's up to as an agent. I know Victor is kind of all over Texas as an agent, too, so he's going to have some unique perspectives to what's going on in the market here right now.
1: Hey, Victor, how are you? I'm doing awesome, Jordan. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: Absolutely. And thank you so much for coming on. I know you're local here in Austin. So first thing I want to get out of the way here is what's your favorite restaurant in the Austin area? Awesome.
1: Uh, There's so many, but my wife and I were actually going out to dinner at Tillery Kitchen right off of East Cesar Chavez. It's right on Tillery Street. And they were closed. It was like a Monday. And we stumbled upon Llama Kid. Um, Have you been there yet? Llama Kid off of Cesar Chavez? So Phenomenal. A truck? it's no it's a it's a it's a brick and mortar um but best food i've ever had ever anywhere
0: <laughs> it's and it, it's insane is it spelled just llama kid lla Llama Lama kid
1: the animal and the little person yes
0: let's <laughs> try it out <laughs> man it's not heard of that
1: yeah, get yourself an amaretto sour. They've got some excellent drinks over there and uh, and the food is like to die for.
0: There's so many good restaurants. I mean, I feel like every week we try something new and de- we try to go somewhere new, yeah, at least every other week. and there's just the endless amount of great restaurants to try. So it's a lot of fun,
1: you know, I feel a little bit spoiled because, like I grew up in this tiny little town in Pennsylvania and you know, maybe there was like one decent restaurant where you could go, like, you know, that you always went to after like a, a graduation or to celebrate somebody's like baptism, whatever it was. Um, but here we I'm like, well, I haven't been anywhere new in 10 days, like what when we're going through Yelp looking at the new restaurants. So we're super spoiled. Same with coffee shops too. We
0: got great coffee here. It's it's gotta be the competition. There's just so much, so many good restaurants and so many good coffee shops that yeah. You you can't be mediocre, or you can't oh, be poor at what you do.
1: Yeah, it's a good uh, it's a good metaphor. It's a good metaphor for business, for real estate, too. You can't be mm-hmm. mediocre.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Love it. <laughs> so, Victor, where are you from? How did you get to Austin? And how are you involved with real estate investing in the Austin area?
1: Yeah, cool. Um, so I'm originally from uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, if you've ever watched the office, uh, Michael, Michael Scott country. Well, I grew up outside (laughs) of Scranton where they do the booze cruise. They go to Lake wall and Paul pack. I went to wall and Paul pack high school. So, (laughs) um, the office put us on the map and I can finally, you know, put a, uh, at least some kind of, um, geographical reference to where I grew up. Um, then after that, after college, got into real estate in New York. Actually, I was in Manhattan. I was uh, I was an agent there, uh, selling condos and um, trying to trying to make my way in the Big Apple. And I bumped into uh, this girl there. I think as often happens, and she was a Texan. And uh, the very first date that we had, she says, "Hey, I don't know where you think this is going to go, but I'm uh, I'm applying for jobs back home." Um, and I told her like, like, relax, it's not like we're going to get married or anything. We're just, uh, you know, having, having a drink and, um, famous last words. So then, uh, like a year and a half later, I was hopping in, in a U-Haul and moving, moving my butt down to Texas and reestablishing the agency and the investing business here. And, uh, it was a pretty serendipitous move because it was 20, I guess it was 2017, 18, that we made that move and started buying in, in Texas.
0: That's awesome! You lucked out. You picked the right one to move you down to Austin. (laughs) I know. Sometimes better to be lucky than good. I think. Yeah. So you were in New York selling condos, and I think like that's everybody's heard of Ryan Serhant and watched a million dollar listing and all that stuff. Uh Um, That'd be quite a change from selling condos in New York to. I mean, it's the same function. You're doing the same thing, but just a different product altogether. Totally. It's. It was a totally different dichotomy going from New York real estate to
1: Texas, both on the investing side, as well as the agency side of the business. They're just totally different markets, different cultures, um, different ways of analyzing property. Um, So yeah, very, very, very different markets. But at the end of the day, um, I'm much more bullish on the Texas market than
0: the New York market, both
1: in terms of agency and investing.
0: Oh, yeah. I saw an article the other day that said by 2100, and I know that sounds a really long ways off, but this is just where they think it's going. By 2100, they think Dallas is going to be the largest city in the United States, bigger than New York. They think Houston's going to be number two, and they think Austin's going to be number three. Oh, my goodness. By 2100, which is a long way away. What's that, 77 years from now?
1: you know it's a long way in terms of like i think our perspective like yeah our we're selfish, not going to be
0: alive probably yeah
1: our our selfish singular perspective but you know generationally no and if like you're no. in any kind of position where you're trying to create some kind of generational wealth and like change you know just um the disposition of a family mm-hmm. it's not far not far at all
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. Like the, the, this guy said, Hey, this is for buy and hold. This is great for buy and hold real estate. Um, yeah, it's on Dallas culture map. So Dallas culture uh, DFW biggest population by 2100.
1: <laughs> that's pretty cool. I know it's supposed to overtake, um, Chicago by
0: 2027, uh, which is yeah. right around the corner. So that'll exactly. be, that'll be pretty interesting to see. They'll probably have a tenth of the population of Chicago coming down from Chicago, <laughs> yeah, I know. It. just looking at the the distributions of people coming across the country, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I know you you moved to uh, to Austin because of a girl. Um, what got you interested in real estate investing in Austin?
1: Well, I had um you know, like a lot of us you, you come through listening to the bigger pockets podcasts and you hear the house hacking phrase um, and I had always heard that, and that's what I was doing in New York um outside of New York, I couldn't buy anything really? in Manhattan, so I got into a duplex in um uh, uh, outside of Greenwich, it's what do you call it um like Westchester County. Um so got into a duplex there, house hacking that, and then ended up buying a single family house that had an ADU when I got to Austin. Um and that was like the first entry. So I bought like that little house hack. And I had always like been around real estate ever since college. I had a mentor in college and he owned everything. He owned all of the he owned all of the franchises in town. He owned a couple of car washes, he owned all of the student housing. And every summer, because I was up there, I played football um at at the at the school. Every summer I'd be up there doing like the workouts and stuff and um I would just help him manage the properties so we'd have maybe hundred and fifty units that I'd just knock on the doors once a month because everything was rented out by the month during the off season when all the students are off campus knock at all the doors collect all the rents and I'd meet with uh meet with this guy and we'd sit down and have a a stack of cash and checks about uh two and a half three inches thick and uh we just chop it up and talk about business and real estate and what he had going on and that was kind of the bug. And since then, I've just been consuming content, um, podcast books, all that
0: kind of stuff. And house hack is the lowest barrier to entry, I think. So that was the start. That's awesome. So you house hacked in New York, and how far uh, I have not a great grasp on the geography of the New York metro area. How yeah. far is Westchester from like uh the East Village or the whatever, the lower east side? Yeah, so I was in Port Chester, New York. Port Chester is
1: probably, if you take the um, the Metro North, which is the train, you take the Metro North, you're about 40 minutes from Grand Central Station.
0: Oh, wow. That's not bad at all. And you always hear people say, hey, there's no way you can house hack anywhere in New York. 40 minutes yeah. feels like a normal commute. Yeah in New York.
1: Very very normal commute. It made it tough because you've got to like, you know, do the train schedule in order to meet up with a buddy and if you've got right. a buddy in the East Village, you've got to like hop on the train and go to Grand Central and then get on a subway and you know, it's it can be cumbersome and it can turn into a 90 minute ordeal to get from Port Chester to, you know, somebody's like um happy hour, which it's not the New York experience that most people want. They want to be able to walk down their their walk up and, and go out to uh, like a really happening place. Um, but um, I did that for a year and a half and decided I wanted to build some wealth instead of continuing to pay $3,000 a month in rent.
0: Hey, guys, this is Jordan Moorhead here. And I wanted to ask if you could do a huge favor for me. If you could go leave a review for this podcast wherever you're listening to it. That would really help me get this into the hands of other people that are interested in information about Austin real estate investing and I'd be able to help more people. Thanks, guys. Yeah, pay $1,500, $2,000 for a room. Yeah, exactly. Like that's that's <laughs> And So that's so many people in New York saying like, hey, I can't stay in New York. I can't possibly continue to pay $3,000 a month in rent. You can tell them like, hey, move 40 minutes out. Yep. And, and you can get a house hack. That's yeah, awesome. nothing yes. wrong with that. So your first house hack here in Austin, I want to say it was in East Austin, right?
1: No, it was uh, up by the Domain. It was oh, cool. quail, qu- it was Quail Creek um, nice.
0: area. Yeah. yeah, love that. There's all those Quail streets up there.
1: Yeah, Gamble Quail, Mountain Quail, Redbird quail, quail. Yeah, all
0: that stuff. Yeah. So you said that was a single family with an ADU. What'd you do with the Where did you live, and what did you do with the property?
1: Yeah, I lived in the main bedroom, actually. So like the master bedroom, I took that one and I rented out the rest of it. I rented it out by the room while I was living there. And then when I moved out, I rented out each individual
0: unit separately. Okay, that's awesome. And what have been your real estate strategies other than that house hack, which I'm a huge believer in house hack too?
1: Yeah, I know. I know you're a big uh, proponent of the house hack game. It's I think it's a no-brainer, you know, yeah. um, low low barrier to entry, debt pay down, you get the appreciation potential of the asset, all those things. Um, but other strategies, specifically in Texas, um, we did a lot of rent by the room investing, so bought a big house in Pflugerville that had six bedrooms and 4,000 square feet oh. and and rent out each one of those bedrooms. Um, that was an excellent deal for us, still have it. Um Did a couple of single-family houses in South Austin, um, just like long-term style rentals. Mm -hmm. And then ended up getting into um, the San Antonio market, which I really like and I'm really Mm -hmm. bullish on, and bought a couple of quadplexes and single-family houses and Converse and Mankey Park and Tobin Hill. Um, and what I've really been liking is doing a midterm rental strategy in those quadplexes. Cause I can pull, you know, I can pull $1,800 a month for a midterm rental. And we've got 12 units down there, um, mm-hmm. 12, three quadplexes, 12 units between Tobin Hill and Mankey Park, 100% occupancy and pulling in 1850 to $2,100 a door. Um, so awesome. numbers on those ones have been excellent, especially when you look at, you know, cash yield in San Antonio versus Austin. Um, the past couple of years, we've been a little bit more lenient toward the, the to our friendly neighbors to the south rather mm-hmm. than investing domestically here in Austin.
0: Yeah. And I, I think I'm kind of the same way. I've always house hacked where I've lived, but where I've wanted to live is always somewhere that other people want to live. So the property values have gone up quickly. Like my first one was East Austin, and I did another one in East Austin, and South Austin. But just- just by house hacking in Austin, like you're talking about house hacking is just a no-brainer. You just do that two times and hold on to it and don't sell it, and you're a millionaire. You know, millionaire. It's, easy. Like <laughs> it's, not, it's as close to guaranteed. What's that? You know, what are you gonna put down on a five hundred thousand dollar like duplex? Stuff eighteen thousand five hundred or something.
1: Right. And especially the way like that we run it. So let's say you've got yourself a uh you, you know, like if you are an agent or something like that. Oh, you want to go?
0: Yeah. So starting off, you buy a duplex for five hundred thousand in Austin, you're gonna be down maybe eighteen thousand five hundred to get into it with an FHA loan. That's yeah, all you exactly. Do.
1: And, uh, and like, just in terms of barrier to entry being so low, right. And like how, how you and I do it, you can take that, uh, that commission component as an agent and apply it toward, you know, closing cost credits. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you've, I don't know if you've had this experience where you actually get paid, you walk away with the check at the closing, cause you put in yet too much of an overage or you got like too much in, uh, in concessions and such, and you've got the plus the commission. So it's kind of cool when you can walk away, making a little quick cash on a, uh, on a closing.
0: Yeah, I actually had a buyer with down payment assistance and a ton yeah. of seller credits, because you can get up to 6% seller credit, uh, not towards your down payment, but towards, uh, on FHA, you can use that 6% for rate buy downs, closing costs, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, He actually walked away with a check for $17,000 Yeah, when he had down payment assistance because of the rents and because of all the overages, and it was yeah. wild, man.
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool. The first time that we did that, i I helped my wife buy a house hack before we were married. um but she thought I did something illegal. She's like, when we got out of the closing table and I think we walked away, she ended up, cause we used the T-Shack program at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we walked away. I think she ended up getting a check for like 3,200 bucks or something similar to your client. Was it wasn't 17 grand though. Goodness gracious. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but she, we get into the car and she asked me, she, so like, was that legal? Was that like, okay. What we did? yeah but that's just like you know one of the one of the many many levers that you have as a as a house hacker fHA agent type of uh type of a setup so it's pretty cool
0: yeah the reason I love the house hack the most too is like you you get into that and you can get your foot in the door there and two three four years later maybe even a year later you have so much so many more resources you could sell the house hack you could refinance you've not been paying rent for a year or two and You've got all this extra money that you can then invest in other projects exactly. exactly. So big fan there. Awesome. From um, Victor, do you have like an instance of like a, a biggest mistake you've made in real estate investing maybe if something's gone wrong, you'd say to somebody else, "Hey, don't do this because I know you've done <laughs> quite a bit of projects now.
1: Yeah, um, definitely has come with its share of lumps. So um, I ended up buying and getting almost... Just under thirty doors, I think we ended up having like twenty eight or so across several properties in upstate New York. And mm-hmm. when I first started investing in real estate, it was very numbers driven. You know, it was, hey, here's what the projected rents are. um here's you know your your um, insurance and your vacancy and your management fees and your CapEx costs and all this stuff. And you run the run the numbers like you would um traditionally run the numbers on any kind of uh, uh, cash flow calculator analysis. And what I learned was, you—it's hard to quantify neighborhood quality, asset quality, and all of those things cannot be captured on a spreadsheet, right? So we would have quadplexes picking them up for you know fifty thousand dollars for a quadplex that was leasing out for seven fifty per door. So forget about the the one percent rule. You know we're doing stuff that was at like a four five six percent. Type yeah. of a uh, multiplier, which was ridiculous, and thought that I was like, you know, the the best uh, producer and the best investor out there because everybody out there is struggling for one percent, and I'm getting three and four percent all day. Um, all that to say, you know, you end up getting what you pay for, and tons of issues with the assets, and old inventory, and high crime rate areas, and high tenant turnover. So. I ended up really learning to also management-wise, right? Once I moved to Texas, I had this big portfolio in upstate New York. Uh, Now I'm relying on out-of-state management, which can go very well. But um, I just didn't know what I didn't know. And I ended up really releasing the reins too much uh, for my out-of-state managers and not following up with them and not checking the books. And and, um, it ended up being that we lost a ton of money just in terms of vacancy and a lot of repairs, excessive repairs needed on those assets. And where I really saw the needle move in terms of my net worth and in uh, in the portfolio was when I started focusing on higher quality assets that maybe on paper they they didn't look as favorable as those those two and three percent rule deals that we were picking up in New York. But in reality, you know, a zero percent cash on cash return in Austin. It crushes that that $75,000 quadplex that's leased out, that's pulling in $2,000 a month on paper, Mm -hmm. crushes it. And that's something that I've routinely um, had to try and communicate to clients, to other investors, um, that, hey, just it's not all it's cracked up to be. When you look at a COC, a cash-on-cash return of 10%, um, there's usually an inverse relationship between cash-on-cash and asset and neighborhood quality. Um, so it's not all bad going for something at zero percent or break even in terms of cash flow if you can get into a high high grade asset and a good good uh, and a good area. So that's been one of the biggest things that I've had to learn. Had to uh, I think cope with a compressed cash yield in mm-hmm. order to
0: uh, realize a heavier leverage return with like a heavier appreciating asset. Yeah, actually, the only person I know who's managed uh, like very low-end properties that are high cash on cash returns ended up building a property management company around it. You know, so he he's got his hands on everything. He's doing everything. And yeah, like, you know, like you like you said, mo- most people want to be passive investors. They want to have an asset that that maybe they put a property manager on, they just read a statement every month. Yeah. Um, what you're describing is not that. You really need to be hands-on and it's hard to do when you're not around it exactly exactly so
1: that was definitely the biggest lumps that i'd taken was just buying just crap inventory you know mm-hmm. um just because it made sense on paper where i didn't know the real realities of the marketplace that i was investing in um so going forward you know using that as a learning as a learning um uh, as a lesson Um, And really helping that to inform like, okay, when I go and I buy stuff now, it's much more neighborhood and asset quality focused than it is um, cash on cash return and only looking at what my my calculators say.
0: Were those, uh, you said they were older. How old were those homes? Yeah, we're talking like
1: 1920s, 30s, 40s. A lot of Mm -hmm. that Northeast type of inventory was built around that time. So most of them were in that range.
0: Okay. And was that, you said, was that like Buffalo or something?
1: Well, it was in a variety of places. So yeah, Buffalo was one of the cities. Jamestown, Mm -hmm. New York was another one of the cities. Jamestown is on the far west side of the New York state route by like Erie, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, those, those upstate markets. Okay. Yeah. Lots of snow,
0: really cold.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. And a, net negative migration
0: of people. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's always something. To look at. I think that doesn't get talked about so much. Um, no. How important it is to have a positive increase in population when you're looking at real estate investing. People look at all the spreadsheets, but it's not who's moving there because there's lots of people moving there. The rents are going to go up. The property values are going to go up. You're going to rent it easier. You're going to have more tenants to choose from.
1: Totally. We look right. at three main macro factors when we're buying. Um, it's population growth, job growth, and median wage growth. Like we mm. want to see all three. Like San Antonio, for example, San Antonio yeah. for a long time has had positive population growth and the number of jobs were increasing since since about like the mid 90s, they've had population and um, population growing and jobs growing. But they didn't start really seeing a growth in median income until Austin had their big boom. With uh, a lot of tech coming in, and as soon as they started to see a median wage increase in San Antonio, is when we started to see property values begin to buoy in the last, you know, four to five years. Is when it really started, obviously accelerated by COVID. Um, but that's best been like a, a new phenomenon for San Antonio, which is why I think we're seeing more um, aggressive acceleration of values in San Antonio right
0: now because you've got the trifecta. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's. It feels like San Antonio feels like it's poised to have a tremendous amount of growth in the near future because there's things have gotten so expensive here. And a lot of people are saying, hey, I want to stay in this area. Where do you go? San Antonio sounds pretty good.
1: Yeah, we hear it all the time. It's like, hey, like we didn't couldn't really find anything. Um, But what do you think about San Antonio? I have that conversation at least once a day. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, good problem to have. Yeah, for sure. So, Victor, if you had to start over today with learning everything you've learned from having the properties in upstate New York that seemed great and all that, the experience investing in the Central Texas area, what would you do if you started today and had no assets?
1: Today, if I had no assets starting over, I would be more focused on one- I I, here's what I wouldn't change. I would not change the house hack and jumping in and learning how to one just like get comfortable talking about larger numbers. You know, buying a $350,000, a $500,000, a $700,000 asset um, feels really scary when you haven't bought anything like that before. Um, When you have like, you don't even know, like, am I allowed to wire $20,000 to a bank? Is that something I can do? (laughs) You know, Um, so I think logistically it feels really good to knock down those barriers early. And I would definitely do that. I wouldn't change that for anything. What I would do is instead of trying to generate such heavy cash yield in the beginning, because at the at the end of the day, like we're, we're young, we're in prime working years. I don't want to retire. I enjoy working. I enjoy hustling. And really that heavy cash flow is probably like a sunset type of a plan. You know, when you really want to achieve that freedom of expression. I would focus more heavily on heavier growth areas. You know, the Carolinas and Texas, and uh, Florida and Nevada, and um, a lot of these really high growth markets, and more of an appreciation play because I've seen what it does to accelerate um, and multiply capital. Uh, it's like trading on margin, but instead of only getting fifty percent from Merrill Lynch to to go and buy stocks on margin. You can buy at 80% leverage, Mm -hmm. which is kind of crazy. And better with
0: house hacks, you can get 96.5% leverage.
1: Exactly, exactly right. So I definitely have more of a perspective in terms of like the long term growth of the asset rather than relying so much on heavy day one cash flow. Um, Also, I would look at more um, aggressive income generation. Opportunities like creating more businesses, mm. right? or using the real estate that I purchase as a business. For example, we've had more cash generated from, like, for example, I bought one hundred and eighty five acres and uh, with a couple of barns on it and uh, and a big, beautiful house in Pennsylvania and turned it into a wedding venue. and oh. on on paper, Right. If you look at the cash-on-cash cash return of renting out this farmhouse in Pennsylvania, it's like, no, you would never touch that piece of property. But because it had the appropriate zoning and because it had good proximity to a couple of major metros, use as a wedding venue made total sense. So that's a way that we're able to purchase an asset um, and establish a business that then pays down the the note, plus throws off a ton of extra cash flow. So I would look at more of like a business element to each piece of real estate that I purchased rather than just taking it at face value for a rental property. So stuff like, you know, short-term rental strategies, like in uh, in San Antonio, you can take one of the units in a duplex or a quad and do a short-term rental. Uh, so those short-term rentals that we have in San Antonio have been generating excellent cash flow and we're still in a good A-grade asset. Um And then the the wedding venue business, for example, you know, it throws off $40,000 a month and you only need, um, and total cash outweighs about 14 grand in terms of OPEX and and pity payments. So more stuff like that, that leverages real estate as the backbone of a business enterprise, rather than just using it at face value, like I said, for another rental property.
0: Nice. That's awesome. And I think that's a, a lot of people are finding that by making real estate more of a business right now when it's harder to find cash flow and long term oh, yeah. rentals to make a lot more sense. And that's really cool. The wedding venue, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. I think there's like, it's a timing piece, right? Mm-hmm. So, right now, you have to just ask yourself and be candid and I think honest with yourself, like where you're at. Like, will $500 a month in free and clear cash flow really change your quality of life today, right now? And the answer for most people who are like getting into this space, is no like you're working full time and you probably spend more than five hundred dollars on a couple of lunches and some drinks with your buddies every month. Like the five hundred bucks is not gonna be huge and impactful. But if you go ahead and get some really good high quality real estate and establish a few businesses that are throwing off heavy cash yield, and you take that cash and pump it back into a real estate portfolio, you'll be able to step aside in maybe fifteen or twenty years. And then I would call it like taking your chips off the table. A lot of these really good, high-quality pieces of real estate that you're holding, and then maybe it makes sense to really transition it into a heavier cash flow type of portfolio, or maybe like you know a large hundred fifty unit complex, something like that. And then and then you go ahead and and uh, you say, okay, you're like you you've won the game and take your hands off. That's at least like my perspective as I go
0: through these things. Sure. Yeah, that's a good perspective. I like that. I think it, you do have to look at it in phases, and it's. Yes. Everybody wants it all everything right now. I get, I'm sure you get asked the same question. Where do I invest right at cash flow and appreciation? Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You don't. It does it doesn't (laughs) really you you get a little bit of one and a lot of the other, or a little bit of one and a lot of the other. You you don't get a lot of both. You don't get everything. That's like the cake and eat it too. Like you're talking about. You found. Properties that on paper cash flowed really, really well, but they were really hard to manage. They probably weren't appreciating that well because the population no, was declining. they went down.
1: They went down in value. I ended up oh, eating wow. huge losses in order to sell those friggin' things, even in the heart of one of the hottest markets, you know, real
0: estate markets we've ever had. Yeah, zero um, interest rates and crazy stuff like that too, yeah. Jordan Moorhead here. Really quick, he wanted to tell you a couple other ways you can keep track of us. If you want to listen to all these podcasts and ask questions, the Moorhead team on YouTube is the best place to be. And then Austin Real Estate Investors on Meetup is a great place to keep track of all of our meetups we have going on.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, do you do you listen to
0: Brian Buffini at all? I know of him. My father listens to him, but I don't. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I he's he's one of my favorite uh just like I think like thought leaders, especially in real estate. And um, he's like, he talks about this idea of appreciation versus cash flow all the time. And it's like, if you're, if you try and get both, you end up with none, you know, yeah. and that, and we've really, obviously it's not none. You can try and thread that needle, but like what you just said, you end up on one side of the spectrum or another and people who try and balance it, they end up stack, they they end up sacrificing the essence of a property that makes it so valuable as an appreciating play or as a cash flow play, and they really do end up in no man's land, and it's like they they end up with a mediocre at best asset, and uh, it can be pretty disappointing and this, I think discouraging for an investor when their first deal ends up being yeah. lackluster.
0: And then right, you know, like you were talking about, we were in an almost a zero interest rate environment for so long, but. Right now, we still have so low inventory in the places where the population is strong, even though interest rates have gone up just dramatically, you're still getting good prices for stuff. But the places where population's declining, and then you also have the interest rates are going way up, and maybe the taxes have gone up, it's going to be really hard to get good values for these properties. And it's going to be really hard to rent them and manage them well. So you really have to look at a bigger macro picture. Obviously, if you invest in Texas in a metro, you're probably okay.
1: Yeah, but. it and it's like when you look at um, the number of buyers on the sidelines right now in in Texas in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, every time we've had like a flinch of interest rates coming down, it's been like a wave of buyers coming back in and like clamoring mm-hmm. for for real estate. So it's interesting um, that we've had. That values have stayed as high as they have, even with rates, you know, touching eight percent. in a lot of ways, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. And I think that just speaks to the strength of the market that we're in. And I know it's not like this across the entire country. A lot of the country is seeing a really big contraction off of their median sale prices, um, but we just we haven't seen that big of a move across like DFW, Austin, San Antonio, Houston. Um, it's been relatively neutral movement. For the past probably four to five months.
0: Yeah, it's certainly gotten it's seems to stabilize and like we're going in the right direction now. Yeah. Awesome. So, Victor, you know, you've done a lot and it sounds like you've gotten into all sorts of different things that I had no idea you were in, like wedding venues and midterm rentals in San Antonio. Um, what's next for you? What what are your long-term goals and what's your vision for real estate investing for yourself?
1: Um Getting close to like that vision, I think that I've been working on for a couple of years now. Um, what we, what I really wanted was hundred thousand dollars a month in gross income uh, from free and clear property. That means that I'd probably end up netting, you know, sixty five thousand a month from all of those pieces of real estate, and. I don't fully know what's next because I feel like what we've been trying to do, my wife and I, has just been like, let's lock in a certain standard of of uh, of life, and then eliminate risk, meaning pay down debt and get and just like lock it in so it it can't be taken away, and then I can just do my crazy business ideas. Like if I want to start a food truck franchise or something, I can do those things uh, Mm -hmm. without jeopardizing the the standard of life that we've already kind of like you know locked in. So, next for us is really just continuing to build the mid and short term rental multifamily. I call it a utilitarian style short term rental model. So instead of like a vacation or a destination stay, it's more of a uh, it's more like people are renting these places because they they have to be in town for a certain reason, rather than like they want to be there for a bachelorette party or a wedding, whatever it is. Um, and I we've done really really well focusing on that type of asset. Um so build that up to about 30 doors all utilitarian made in short term rentals. Um, work to pay them off, get mm-hmm. the uh, get the wedding venue property paid off, get maybe a forever a forever home by my in-laws paid off in a good school system. We just have a little baby, he's uh he's a month old so oh, um great. Yeah, thank you. So hopefully get into a decent school system with a good football team and uh, hey, I can live vicariously through my son. <laughs> there you go. But uh, I think I think that's about it. We're, I think we've got a pretty clear vision about where we're going, continue to do what we're doing. And it's nice when you don't have large deviations in, uh, in your goals anymore. And I think that only happens because you know you, you work at your goals for a long time and you notice that the plan that you have starts to change less and less and less and uh until it it becomes like calcified in your mind like this is the direction that we're going and we're going to hit it and then once we hit it maybe then I'll look up and decide what to do next. Yeah, no it's good to know what you want. I think it helps so much. Totally. It's very easy to make decisions when the uh you know when you know exactly what it
0: is that you're going for. When you're clear. Um I think the best example of that is Arnold Schwarzenegger. He talks all about his vision. He's always had a vision. He has a documentary yeah. on Netflix. Like, I just watched before. it. So good. Yeah. Really good. Yeah, really he talks good. all about, like, hey, okay, I could see what I wanted and I just knew where I was going. You know, you don't have a yeah. question in your head. This is what I'm doing. Yep. Yep. It makes it easy to say yes to
1: deals too. Um, I don't know how you feel, but if it's the right deal now when it comes through, it it's almost like you don't. You don't even really have to dig in too deep. You mm-hmm. kind of like see the numbers, you see location, you see price, and you just know it's like, okay, this is one that we're going for. Um, and yeah. I can go up to this price approximately. If mm-hmm. I get it below that, it's a win, pull the trigger. Um, and it takes very little mental bandwidth to do those deals anymore.
0: Oh, yeah. No, we have a very specific criteria for deals we buy in an area that I yeah. buy a property in. And we know if we can get it in between this price range. That it's going to need that we know how much the work is going to cost. That it's going to need, yep. and we know what it's going to be worth after we're done with it, and what it will rent for. So it's it's like a two second thought process. Exactly. This yeah, works. it's pretty cool. Do yeah.
1: you do you ever find yourself getting impatient with other people who don't make decisions in two
0: seconds? <laughs> yes, but I, I I understand, and I I don't I don't end up in that situation so much anymore. Yeah. Um, I've told a lot of people like, Hey, I would buy this deal. This deal makes sense. And you know, if they don't understand it, it's okay. I understand yeah. being new. I, I probably don't work with buyers enough anymore to, to come into that situation so much. Yeah. Um, a lot of the sellers I work with too are very sophisticated and it's like, Hey, this is this is what we want. That's our bottom line. It's all numbers based. They have their numbers in their head. Yeah so I yeah, I understand and I've definitely dealt with it. I think as far as being a person that ends up in that situation, I've passed up on way too many that it were so close. I think you should just if it makes sense. One of the most successful real estate investors I know says, I just tie it up. If it even sort of makes sense, I just tie it up. Then I figure uh-huh. it out. I figure out the granular pieces of it. Right, right. Mm-hmm.
1: I find myself, I find myself talking with so many other investors, and so many of them wanting to mirror, um, like the type of inventory or the type of uh the type of portfolio that I have built, and like wanting mm-hmm. to do something similar, and laying out the pieces like on a silver platter for it to to happen, and then you know, balking at a deal that I end up just going ahead and buying anyway. It's just, it, it just surprises me. And um, sometimes I can feel myself getting short tempered (laughs) with, Mm -hmm. with, uh, with other investors, because it's like, it's, it's almost like it's right there. You just have to go ahead and say yes to it. Um,
0: But it's, it's more of a me problem than a them problem, I think. Yeah. It's scary, man. When you're new, like that seems, I don't know if you've experienced the same thing, but with like a house hack, or my own house, spending five six $600,000 doesn't feel like a big deal at all. But buying an investment property in an area that I don't know and understand yeah. for $500,000 feels like so much money. Yeah, yeah, totally different. I get that. I get that for sure. It's so different. And that's the feeling when you're brand new. You're like, I remember looking at $200,000 properties when I first started investing in real estate, and it was for house hacks. And that was so much money. I'm like, this is, I cannot make a mistake here. This is so much Uh, cash. I wish (laughs) I had that opportunity anymore.
1: I remember, I remember like my very first deal was a six unit in Pennsylvania, uh, that I bought seller finance. That was a pretty sweet little, uh, little property. I bought it for 90 grand. Um, and that just goes to, that should highlight the asset quality and neighborhood quality right there. Mm -hmm. But, uh. Um, I remember asking for like you know all the books say I have to get the T12 and I have to get the rent rolls and and I have to uh, do all this due diligence. And I remember asking repeatedly for all these documents. And at the end of the day, Jordan, you know, like a lot of these things just don't exist.
0: <laughs> it's like the the with, owner, with the residential,
1: yeah, not at all. Yeah, like the owner, the owner. You know, he, he's owned it for a couple of years. He didn't keep good books. He collected rent and cash. He spent it on milk and bread and eggs, and he lived on it for a while. Yep. And, uh, and that's the extent of his books, you know? And I remember feeling so, like, defeated because all of these th- things that I was supposed to have, all of this due diligence— it didn't exist, mm-hmm. but I knew it was it like it was a good opportunity for me to get my feet wet into uh, like a larger type of a deal. So I was like, I guess I just have to do it. I think, yeah. <laughs> and, and without having all of those pieces in place, and it's super scary. Looking back now, it's like it was ninety thousand dollars. It was a sixplex. It was fully <laughs> occupied. All the tenants paid in cash. Go for it, <laughs> you
0: know. Yeah. So. I get it. Yeah, no, it's it's scary when you're new, man. It's it's easy yeah, to forget yeah. that when you get so comfortable doing it, but there's so many things, and you read. The information kind of mismatch there. You're reading commercial books. They say, get a T12, get a rent roll. You need the yes. the last two years for the profit and loss. And Some guy that owns a sixplex, he's like, hey, I, I don't even barely know what rents I get on this thing. <laughs>
1: I you know, know. totally leases, different.
0: But he doesn't have a rent roll put together.
1: That's, right, right. He he has no idea what who the tenants are who are staying there. He's like, Well, I mean they renewed the lease three years ago. I don't know if it's yeah. still active, but they still pay me.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's all he cares about. He's getting paid. Yep. Right, been, exactly. Been there, done that. Um Victor, <laughs> do you have a favorite business or mindset book that you like to recommend to people?
1: I love uh the compound effect by Darren Hardy. Great. Book. Um I talk about small, seemingly insignificant actions performed repeatedly day after day for a long period of time. Like that's what I've essentially like built my businesses off of that concept. Like mm-hmm. if if I do this same thing over and over for a long period of time, will I get to where I want to get to? And if the answer is yes, um, then continue to do it. Um, but I also like thinking about that concept from the negative. So, for example, like like working out, I think is a super easy parallel. If you skip a workout. Today, you know, and you continue to replicate that act for a long period of time. Like, what will that compound effect look like down the road? And obviously, it's going to have a negative corollary. Um, But that same exact thing, you can take a positive action and multiply it over a course of every day for a long period of time, and you can have a much more, you know, um, parabolic type of positive result. Um, So that book, I'd probably read it once a year, uh, just to refresh that concept.
0: Yeah, what does Warren Buffett say that compound interest is one of the eight, eight wonders of the world or something like that? The, Seven yeah, the, the, eighth, the eighth wonder of the world for sure, compounding interest. Yeah, but yeah, that same thing applies to actions or habits. You know, if you eat the right thing every day for a long period of time, you end up in really good shape. But if you analyze the yep. deal every day for a long period of time, you're going to find good deals eventually. Yep, exactly. That little thing, that small piece performed every single day
1: over and over, mm-hmm. and, over and over and over again. Um, it yields results exponentially larger than the, uh, than the sum of the parts. That's awesome.
0: Victor, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you or follow you? Easiest way is
1: my website, victorsteffen.com. V-I-C-T-O-R-S-T-E-F-F-E-N.com.
0: Right. That's awesome. Do you have an Instagram handle either?
1: I think it, yeah, there's like the Instagram and the TikToks and the Facebook, all that stuff is out there. It's all just at Victor Stefan.
0: Cool. Well, Victor, it's been great having you on. I really appreciated this. I know we haven't seen each other here in a little while, um, but we, we'll, I'm sure we'll run into each other around town at various investing meetups and things like that.
1: Yeah, for sure. I've been outside of the, uh, the meetup circuit for a while with Baby and several deals oh, yeah. and the pipeline, but uh we'll we'll get out there. I think last time we saw each other, you got you were hosting one over at Central Machine Works. So we'll yeah. we'll we'll see you again for sure.
0: Absolutely. Well cool. Make sure to follow uh go to victorstefan.com, follow at Victor on Instagram, and make sure you follow at Jordan Moorhead on Instagram here too. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Victor. Good to see you. Thanks, Jordan. All right, man. I'll see you soon. Yep. Talk to you soon.